turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, and we'll be continuing our study walking through the book of Ezra. And we'll just begin there where, where Jill left off in verse 7. Verse 7, so may the Lord indeed open our hearts Open our ears, open our hearts that we would receive and take up and hear God's inspired word this morning. Ezra chapter 4, verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Their letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. The Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who lived in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. Reading. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
as we have seen over the course of chapters 1 through 3, Ezra chapters 1 through 3, the people of Judah and Benjamin started the work of the Lord, and they started the work of the Lord with great vigor. God, he had just brought them out of exile from among the nations, and in many ways, what they were experiencing, as we saw, as we've been walking through these chapters, is in many ways akin to another exodus. Yet this time, unlike with Moses, you know the exodus and all that happened there with exodus. So unlike Moses and Pharaoh, we saw instead of King Cyrus's heart being hardened, we saw what? His spirit was stirred. And not just his, but the people's also. And so the people of God, they arose and they left for Jerusalem. Yet they didn't just go home to arise and go do nothing, right? You know, to sit around and roast marshmallows and tell stories of, you know, how things used to be, you know. Remember how it was under Moses and how we complained and grumbled and Many of us died and, you know, and then we went in exile and, yeah. (laughs) Not many good stories uh, that they may have to share, but that's not why they came home. They arose going back to Jerusalem with purpose to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And so it was, as we have seen with Ezra chapter 3, the work began. And so they built the altar to the Lord. They made offerings on it. They celebrated the Feast of Booze and the New Moon. And they even laid the foundation of the temple of the house of God. Many good things. Seeing the hand of God at work. And as they did all that, even though some of them saw it and they wept, Remembering the the way things were. And so there was that going on. Remembering Solomon's temple. And how magnificent it was. How beautiful it was. How majestic it was. They remembered all that. Yet even so, it was a time of rejoicing. Such that we can't quite imagine this. Because most of us, especially as Baptists, we don't necessarily shout all that much when we rejoice. Some of us more than others, right? There you go. But they had a time of rejoicing and the people shouted and they shouted with a great shout. And it was so loud that it was heard even from great distances away. So that was rather loud, even though it was a mixture of weeping and rejoicing. Yet amidst all of that, As this great shout goes out and the shouting and everything else, what was going on there in Jerusalem was about to be known on a much wider scale and not in a good way. So there in the thick of the work of the Lord, we see what we see here in Ezra chapter 4. We see opposition arises. Opposition arises. 
Now, we must see this as it is. This is so often the case when God is doing a work. In the midst of God's workings, in the midst of great things, as the gospel is being preached, it is being proclaimed as God's word, it's being heralded as disciples are being made so also and so often come right along with it. These waves of spiritual warfare, these waves of false teachers and false teaching. And if you have any question about that, just look at the New Testament letters and again and again, as the gospel is going out, as disciples are being made, here is Paul and others addressing one after another false teachers and their false teachings. And so these waves of all these things, these waves of liars, these waves of persecutors, and as we may very well not like to admit it, Waves even of wolves in sheep's clothing. And so all that comes with the work of the Lord. Now, we actually saw little rumblings of this opposition already. And you might remember it from chapter 3. So in chapter 3, verse 3, it said there, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And so we see there these little kind of rumblings already, such that here in verse 1 it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. As you hear that, as you read that, who are these people that approached Zerubbabel and the others? Were they, you know, friends or were they foes? Now, as you just look at what they're asking and what they ask them, I mean, it seems like a reasonable crest, right? I mean, you know, hey, why don't, are you, let, let's just, will you allow us to come and just build with you? I mean, we worship the Lord God as well and we sacrifice to him, and we've even done that since Esau Haddon brought us here. I mean, we're right along with you. But right off, as you see that, we see they were anything but friends. They were anything but friends. And the word used there, or you see it in verse 1, we have the word there, adversaries. Now, that could just be enough, and you get the point, right? <laughs> These are not going to be your friends. Now, just to add a level of that, or just to add a further component of what that word is, it could be literally translated as enemies. And so we're told right at the beginning that these, or at least what these people were, Now, they certainly come, right? They come appearing to have a common goal, right? They come saying, all right, let's sing it. Friends of friends forever, if the Lord is Lord of them, right? I mean, they come with that kind of thing going on, you know, like, hey, we're with you, man. You know, come on, let's do this. But as they sing that song, 
It's all just a big ruse. So who were these people? Well, they were likely a hodgepodge of a variety of peoples. But one among them that you would likely recognize were the Samaritans. I think some of you are already shaking your heads knowing exactly that. Now, as you might know, in the New Testament, Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along all too well. (laughs) And I mean that. They even despised each other. They are the dogs, the Samaritans, the Jews would say. Well, here we might be seeing something of the beginning of all that. A feud for the ages. A sort of kind of hat-filled McCoy kind of thing going on in their day. And how long it went on, right? I mean, that's just a side note. But these feuds and this conflict that you may be having with someone, how deep and long they can go, even beyond your life, to the generations to come. Well, so here they were, all these people saying they were worshiping God and even sacrificing to Him, but something was seriously off about these people. So, in keeping with the Exodus theme, which is right, so that is going on as we're taking in these words, what we have here is more akin to Israel as they kind of looked out over the promised land, if you remember that, or at least they looked out at a distance, like we're heading there eventually, you know, and before them was a land filled with who? Canaanites and a lot of other people. It was a land filled with worshipers of other gods. And so if you remember, what did God tell them in Exodus? He told them in Exodus 23, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So what seems like a simple request here is not so simple after all. In other words, when Zerubbabel and the others tell them no, they were not just being harsh here. They were not being harsh. They weren't just being mean. There's a time when we must say no. Where saying yes could not only be wrong, but it could be sinful. And so we see here Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest clearly know something about these people that we don't know. They just couldn't go right along with them. They couldn't allow them to come and to join in this work. And so what did they do? They took a stand, even if it meant that this was going to backfire, right? Even if it meant it might cost them something. Even if it meant they couldn't go on singing friends are friends forever. And as we see, that's exactly what would happen. And so after the peoples are turned down... They do everything they can to hinder 
the work of the Lord. Now just notice what happened here. Notice the progression of these things in verse 1 to 5. They initially gave off this kind of veneer of compatibility, right? But now, now that they said, no, all the masks are off. They opposed them openly and persistently and sadly, they succeed. And by succeed, I mean through their efforts and their bribery, they hinder the people from building the temple until the time of King Darius. That may not mean much to you, (laughs) but it wouldn't be until around 15 years later that the temple would be rebuilt. That is not a slight hindrance. Now, as you hear all of this about these people and about what the people of Israel are encountering here, it's not, it's honestly not all that different from the kind of things that we face as we participate in the work of the Lord in our day. As we read this, we're not to sit back, you know, kind of with our arms crossed and to say, you know, oh, whatever, you know, those things happened back then, but that kind of opposition will never happen when the Lord does a work around here. Now, I'm not saying that when the Lord does a work, there won't be unity in it. There won't be a common gospel sort of heart in it. But friends, we're not to be naive about these things. Placing our fingers and our ears and pretending like this kind of thing does not happen. Now you and I are to be ready for opposition and hindrances as you aim to live for the Lord also. You're to be ready. We must be honest. Opposition is drawn to the work of the Lord like bees to honey. It's not that we're going around kind of looking for trouble. You know, we're not going around, hey man, can you cause me trouble? I haven't found any opposition lately for living for Christ. That's not what we're going around doing. But what happens is light offends the darkness. It counters the strategies of the devil. It counters the kingdoms of this world. It runs against the grain and not with the grain. And so if you say, and I hope you do, that you would say, Lord, do a work in me. Lord, do a work through me. Lord, do a work in us. And do a work through us. I pray that's what you say. You say with all your heart. But as you do, you need to be ready for what's coming next. Jesus did not accidentally say that following him would mean you must take up a cross. 
He didn't say, oh, wait, sorry about that. Uh, I was a bit extreme when I said cross. I forgot about Americans when they would come along. I probably should have said couch or pillow. You must take up your couch or pillow and follow me. Is that better? Which I, I kind of think that's how we think of Jesus and what he's calling us to do when we become his disciples. But he didn't say that, right? He said we must take up a cross. And Paul wasn't being extreme either when he told Timothy with all urgency in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now if that sounds extreme to you, just ask yourself, Not what's going on with the Bible. If you profess to know Christ, you need to ask what's going on with you. Why isn't this your experience? If it sounds extreme to you, perhaps it's because we've drifted from the fullness of all that Christ is calling us to be. So rather than being naive or even scoffing at all this this morning, you and I are to be ready. We're to be ready and we are to hold fast to God's word even if it's costly. Hold fast to God's word even if it's costly. Standing for God's word and for what God had called them to do, did it cost them something? This is also why Jesus warns you, doesn't he? You know, following Christ is glorious. (laughs) He is the treasure of our souls. He is the love of my life. And he's to be the love of yours also. In Christ, you have the treasure of treasures. You, when you came to him... You should have sold all you had and went and bought that field, right? That's what you did when you came to Christ. He is the greatest treasure in all the world, and I am His, and He is mine. No one's coming before Him. Now, that's all true. But it also will mean a cross as well, won't it? He is glorious. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow after me. There's a sense going around that if God calls you to do something, it will be easy. It won't try you. It won't be just downright hard. tell you from personal experience and from the Bible, (laughs) especially when God has called you to do something, it so often is hard. It so often is trying. And it so often will require that you cling to God with all you are. It will require that you cling to Christ and to his word with everything you have. This is why, at least 
Some I've seen as they get married, they're just totally surprised. But like, what? Is, why is this so hard? You know? When God calls you to do something, He's not going to say it's going to be easy. I mean, Haven Baptist Church, Vision 2023 and beyond. Do you think that's going to be easy? Do you think it's not going to cost you anything? It won't be. If the Lord is calling us to it, then there's work to be done. And so hold fast to God's word, even if it's costly. And so be ready, hold fast, and be salt and light. We may well need to say no to someone. We're to love by the power of the Spirit of God and, which is not in conflict with this at all, be willing to preach Christ, confront sin, and stand for the truth. No conflict between the two. And we're to do all that without neglecting the serious call from God in Christ to love our enemies. Right? To pray for those who hate you and persecute you. To long for their salvation. It is possible that you can do all those things and exemplify Christ even in opposition. Even in opposition. Which is what the Lord is calling us to do. Now, as is the case with opposition, it's not so easily squelched, is it? Which is exactly why we see what we see here next. We see opposition's many strategies. Opposition's many strategies. Now, as you initially look over these verses, verses 6 through 24, they look rather straightforward, don't they? (laughs) A letter to the king and his response. Got it. (laughs) That's simple enough. Yet as we come to these verses, more is going on here than just that. Even so much more that it requires a bit of explaining on my part. A bit of study on yours. The book of Ezra is doing something here that we're not entirely used to. Not even within the other books of the Bible. Other narratives. So these verses in verses 6 through 23, please listen, because this will matter. And if you want, if you take seriously that this Sunday morning, when you come, you're not coming just to be entertained, but you're coming to know the Word of God and study the Word of God, that you may know the meaning of the Word of God, then you need to listen right now. Because this is going to require some explanation. (laughs) A good deal of it. 
And so these verses in verses 6 to 23, what they're doing is they are looking ahead. They are looking ahead. Now, if you could, and you may well do this, if you write in your Bible like I do, or if you don't, just know this, but you could well put brackets in front of verse 6. So, right? One right there, and at the end, those brackets at verse 23. That would be helpful. Now, why would you do that? Well, if you've ever watched any movies or shows, often they have these moments, right, when, when characters, they have flashbacks to something in the past, right? You know, some past memory, something that happened to them, some unique event, you know, something, and maybe the screen does this kind of thing, you know, and then they go backward in time. And remember, well, Ezra is, the book of Ezra is doing something like that here, except it's not a flashback, which is why it's confusing perhaps for us, but it's actually a flash forward. So this thing going on in verse 6, and we're going into the future. (laughs) And so he takes us into what happens years down the road. So how do we know this? Well, we see it in several ways. He cites Cyrus there in verse 5, along with Darius. may not mean much to you, but we'll get to that. So after that, he cites Ahasuerus in verse 6. Remember, that's where our brackets began. And Artaxerxes in verse 7. And at the very end in verse 24, he cites Darius again. Is that a bit confusing? <laughs> You know, so king after king. But then here's the kicker. Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes ruled as kings later than Darius. Do you see why maybe this could be a bit confusing? (laughs) So what in the world is up with all of that? What in the world is going on, Ezra? (laughs) Well, in order to understand this, We need to know something about when all these kings were kings. When they reigned. Now, Ezra, this is why I said what I said. You need to understand this to understand the meaning of this passage. Because Ezra, the author of Ezra, is expecting that you will know these things as you read these chapters in this chapter. So we need to know when they were kings. So I think you'll have it on your screen there, hopefully to be an aid to you. But Cyrus, he reigned first from 536 to 530 B.C. You got that down? Okay. So between Cyrus and Darius, Cambyses, or Cambyses, if I said his name right, he's not mentioned here. He reigned from 530 to 522 B.C., the son of Cyrus. There it is. Then Darius reigned from 522 to 486 B.C. So those kings would have reigned. Those kings right there, they would have reigned during the time of Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the others that we read of in verses 1 through 5 and in verse 24. Okay, you got that? Still tracking with me? Verses 1 through 5 and verse 24, just those verses, those would be the kings 
of Persia. So then after Darius came Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. And you'll know him from the book of Esther. That was the time of Esther. And so King Ahasuerus, he's mentioned in verse 6. There's where we started the brackets, right? Flash forward. Telling us that everything that's coming here next is in the future. (laughs) Flash forward. The last king mentioned here is Artaxerxes, who reigned from 465 to 425 B.C. And it's to him, then, that this letter was written in verses 7 through 16. And it's him who responds to this letter in verses 17 through 22. So all of that, under Artaxerxes, is when the people, Ezra and Nehemiah, are alive and doing all they're doing. Are you still tracking with me? <laughs> and so taking all that together, there are the kings, verses 1 through 5, verse 24, the first three. In the future, verses 6 through 23, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. So you see how that's a flash forward now. So taking all that together, Ezra is actually pausing the narrative there in verse 5. And he's flashing forward into the future in verses 6 through 23 to the time of Ahasuerus and then to Artaxerxes. And then he resumes the narrative in verse 24. And he says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. You see why you have to be paying attention? So you could take out verses 6 through 23 and it would be one smooth narrative. But he doesn't do that, does he? He flashes forward. So as you see all that, you are right to ask, why does Ezra have this here at all? I mean, why is he doing this? Well, there are several reasons. But one big one is to show just how long and how deep the opposition was going to be. The opposition that had begun under Cyrus would go on for many years to come. It was going to be deep. It was going to be long-lasting. It was going to be great. And it was going to be hard. So in the future then, In our flash-forward verses, and during Ezra and Nehemiah's day, the people, those persons, we see opposition to rebuilding of the wall and the city of Jerusalem. So understanding all that we just walked through makes sense then that we have this emphasis here in verses 12 to 13 and verse 16 on rebuilding the city and finishing the walls. Does that make sense to you? Because that's not what we've been reading about. (laughs) We've been reading about the people rebuilding the temple. Not the walls in the city. And so this explains that. So again, we find opposition. And we find opposition through a letter filled with half-truths and outright lies. 
This is the way that opposition against the Lord so often goes. They told part of the truth. The Jews did return to Jerusalem, yet they exaggerated the truth as well. The Jews were rebuilding a rebellious and wicked city because they were a rebellious people, right? If by that you mean in the eyes of other nations, and if by that you mean in the eyes of maybe someone like Egypt and all them, and if by that you mean even before God himself. But that's not what they're saying. (laughs) Then... They also told outright lies and exaggerations saying that the people wouldn't pay tribute and that the king would lose the province due to the rebellion unless he did something. Verse 13 and verse 16. Now, of course, all of that seems plausible, right? And with opposition, note it well, this is so often what happens. And it's so often all that's needed. Is it believable? Will people think it's true? This is why, people, it matters so much that we preach the Word of God. It matters so much that you know sound doctrine. Because so often people are just going to come and stand in pulpits, sit in Sunday schools, teaching things they ought not to teach that are not God's word, that are not true, that is not what God said. And if it sounds plausible enough to us, we just go right along with it. Which has so often happened in church history again and again and again and again. How many people have been deceived this way? And so what do we find? we see opposition succeeds and the work is stopped. King Artaxerxes takes their letter seriously and the people are more than happy to oblige his instructions. And so they go and forcibly stop the rebuilding of the city and its walls. And if you're hearing walls thinking Nehemiah chapter 1, that's right. Who's king? Artaxerxes. (laughs) So what do we have again and again here? We have a rather grim picture of things, don't we? Yet as we see all of this, as we take in all these things, we're not to tremble over all of those things over opposition, over false teachers, over persecutors, over wolves in sheep's clothing. We're to tremble over living and going on in this life, living it apart from God, and then going on and dying apart from God also. Rather, May it be that you and I would fear God and take heed to the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 10, 28, 
And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what you and I need to do is to resolve to trust God now. Is to resolve to trust God now. That might mean that this very day you need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you have been the agent of opposition. You have been the person opposing God's work and God's word. That today you need to see that the Savior has come. And he has come to pay for your sins. To redeem you. To make you his. That you would repent and believe in this good news. Not as some half-hearted nodding of the head sort of thing. But as someone who says, Jesus is mine completely. My life is his. So you may need to do that today. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him today? Or if you have trusted Christ, you need to see that until Christ comes, our gospel work will come with much toil, friends. Opposition will arise. Discouragements will come and spiritual warfare will rage on. I can tell you, as I've told you in the past, that since I became a believer in Jesus Christ, things have been harder, not easier. But I would not trade it for anything. And neither should you. But that you would resolve to trust God today ready for the opposition when it comes. Resolve today that though we are weak, though we so easily become afraid, and you can admit that, I mean, woe to us if we don't, right? Like, you need to be crying out to God, not depending on yourself. That's how Paul made it. That's how the disciples made it. That's how Nehemiah makes it. And Ezra also. And all these people resolve to trust God, whatever may come. We aren't to go on and to go out as though we are defeated, as though opposition and persecutors are those those who we need to fear. Brothers and sisters, do not fear them. How many of you are not sharing Christ because you are afraid? How many of you have not made even one disciple of Jesus Christ because you are afraid? And so if you're thinking this has nothing to do with me, it has everything to do with you. Go thee therefore make disciples of all nations. This is what Jesus tells you and me to do. So where to do that? Don't fear the opposers and persecutors. Rather, have you not heard what you are? Well, listen to what Paul says. 
in Romans. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, rather than being overcome, take heart the truth that Christ is overcome and in Christ we overcome also. Remember the words of Christ this morning. Remember when God speaks or when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So here is what God is saying to you now. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Praise the Lord. Amen. So may we resolve right now this morning, whatever comes, opposition from whatever direction it may come, And whether opposition is short or long, take heart and trust in God until the work is done. So may we. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray as the saints did in Acts. We pray for boldness. We recognize, even as they prayed, you are the sovereign Lord over all creation, that you are in control. Even as waves of opposition arise, even as wolves come, even as persecutors come, even as plausible lies are set against us, Grant us boldness in Jesus Christ that we would hold fast to the gospel. We would hold fast to making disciples of Christ. And we would grow and be conformed 
to Christ and the body of Christ. May we not be moved, Lord. May you do your work. We pray for that. Do your work in us. Do your work through us. Do your work among us. All for your name's sake and for your glory. We love you, Lord. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.